Fantastic. Thank you, Michael. What, can I ask, what translation was that? That was the, the original. Yeah, it's actually better than the new one. That was really good. Really helpful. Thank you. So lots of the things I'm going to talk about were corrected already in there, but hey, we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> the old ways are the best. Um, hey, isn't it lovely? Good morning. Isn't it lovely when your friend and colleague tells 250 people that something's sweeping through your house? Thanks, Ewan. <laughs> With all you are a pal, a pal indeed. Yes, something's sweeping through our house. Hence, my family are not here this morning. I feel okay, but I am going to probably shoot off at the end. I don't want to. Uh, I find it hard not to shake your hand, so I'm going to go, um, so I don't pass anything on, lest I be carrying anything. Um, but many of you will know. Hey, let me just tell you the title of what we're talking about today. Make sure this is on. When all is said and done. That's what I want to unpack and think about this morning. I'll explain what I mean by that. We're in 2 Samuel, chapter 23, verses 1 to 7, David's last words. Now, most of you, or many of you, will know that I have four little kiddies. um, uh, Three of which have had this sickness so far. One is still holding out. Come on, Sophie. You can do it. Come on, Sophie. Um, But my youngest one is Harry, and he has just turned two. This is not Harry, but this is just a picture of a child that looks cute and a bit like the same age as Harry. Um, And it's the most fascinating stage, actually. Um, Looks a bit pokey, that, doesn't it? Let's get rid of Ewan's pokiness. Let's get rid of that. Um, He's at an age where he's just learning to command uh, the English language. He's just learning what words are all about and what they can actually achieve. And there's new ones popping out every day. This morning there's a new one, Oopace. You know what Oopace is? <laughs> Toothpaste. It was so cute. I'm doing my teeth and he gets right in between, sticks his head, wrestles in, comes out and goes, Oopace. I'm like, yeah, good little man. That was this morning's effort. Um, so sweet. Some of my favourites here. Uh, his regular one is Eswan. Anyone know what Eswan means? This one, that's right. The little pointy finger, Eswan. And what it means is I would really like that thing that I'm pointing to, please. And he has this habit, I don't know why he started this, but bringing me in the mornings, um, you know little water balloons? Little tiny little water balloons that aren't pumped up, that aren't filled with water, and he brings them to me and goes... Ish one, Daddy. Ish one. And what he wants you to do is blow this little balloon up. I'm like lightheaded. I've just woken up and sat drinking a cup of tea, and then and then tie it and then pop it. He really likes it. A bang, a bang. He likes it. He thinks that's ever so fun. Um, and it's just so cute. I can't say no. I'm like, that's it now. And he's like, and then he gets another little balloon. Ish one. And like, yeah, okay. Yeah, just east one. Yeah, east one. Um, he's got appease, which we know is please. Appease. Appease. And literally you can get anything off me with that one. It's so cute. Um, ah, you'd like a second packet of crisps, would you? Appease. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm actually quite a strict parent, reasonably consistent. But with appease, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> the other one he says, which is quite funny, and sometimes he doesn't say appease, so he'll point at something like a massive cream cake that's nothing to do with him, and that is Becky and mine, and we know what it is, and it's on the side. Ah, ish one, ish one, okay. Oh, you'd like that cream cake, would you? And he replies, okay. 
Okay. As if I've suggested it. I don't think he knows how funny that one is. He'd like the cream cake. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so good. So good. Um, the beginning of a life of words. <laughs> oh, there's lots more I could tell you, but we'll be here all day. Um, those words are going to be used to encourage and to bless. They're probably also going to be used to criticize and to tear down at times and to hurt. He's beginning to learn the power of words. These are his first words. But this morning I want us to reflect not upon first words, but upon last words. That moment when all is said and done. The moment when a person realizes actually life is close to its end, not its beginning. And that person reflects on what is most important after all. What it's all really all about. And as we've remembered today, it seems a very appropriate day to be talking about this. The cost of war and the many, 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 many lives. Men and women, soldiers and civilians who have lost their lives in war. It is a good thing to reflect and think about when all is said and done. What is it all about? What is worth living for? What is worth maybe even dying for? I want to share something deeply profound, actually. It's a letter from World War I. It's from the front, uh, written on a scrap of paper by a chap called Private Albert Ford. It's been released to the public domain, so I didn't need permission to share it. Um, It was written to his beloved wife, Edith, on the 21st of October 1917, just days before he went over the top. And he writes this, just listen to these words. My darling, if this should ever reach you, it will be a sure sign that I am gone under. And what will become of you and the chicks, I do not know. But there is one above that will see to you and not let you starve. You have been the best of wives, and I loved you deeply. How much you will never know. Dear heart, do think sometimes of me in the future when your grief has worn a bit and the older children I know won't forget me and speak sometimes of me to the younger ones. Dearest, if the chance should come your way, for you are young and good-looking and should a good man give you an offer, it would please me to think he would take it, not to grieve too much for me. So, dear heart, I will bid you all farewell, hoping to meet you in the time to come, if there is a hereafter. Know that my last thoughts were of you in the dugout, or on the fire step my thoughts went out to you, the only one I ever loved, the one that made a man of me. I find that deeply moving. It was read on Radio 4 this week, as I was lying in my sick bed earlier in the week, and I heard those words, and I wanted to share them. Written on the 21st of October, just five days later, uh, Albert was killed as he went over the top near Ypres. Um, And Edith never did remarry. She treasured that letter of his final words until her dying day. It's a powerful thing, isn't it? A human being communicating their last words. It was beautiful and moving and poignant to hear that. A human being caught inescapably in the machinations of war now gravely aware of his own mortality and he was going to be brave and courageous and join his fellow soldiers as they run into the gunfire and he knows it's likely to be his end 
And so what's most important comes to mind? What is this life all about? And he thinks of his beloved Edith, of his beloved family. He ponders the idea of the one above. Did you hear that? And he also thinks of the life to come. He's unsure. This morning, I want us to look together at what are called David's last words. They're almost certainly not the very last words he ever spoke, but they are probably his recognised as his last poetic official words, written down, last words of reflection. These would have been written at the end of his days and with an awareness of the end. A reflection on his family and on his personal journey of all that he's learnt and a deep pondering of what's to come. When all is said and done, what is important? We do well to reflect together on days like today. So, King David reflects. And he begins in the same way by reflecting upon his personal life, upon his family. It says in verse 1, these are the last words of David, the inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse. I'm David, he says, and Jesse was my dad. He remembers his dad and his family. He remembers his home. He remembers his humble beginnings. We've been preaching through, for those of you who have been here over the last months, been working through his life and what a life it was. But do you remember the fields he started off in, that forgotten bloke? And everyone else was at the feast. He was just the bloke in the field overlooked. Now he goes on to reflect on the huge changes that have happened in his life. He says, these are the inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse, the utterance of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, the hero of Israel's songs. And when I read this at first glance, I thought this can seem a little arrogant, can't it? These are my words, he writes, the great David himself, high and exalted, the hero, may I add, of Israel's songs. Cheeky David, what's he up to here? It's as if he's bigging himself up, but I actually don't think that's what's happening. If we look carefully, he starts by saying, I'm David, I'm Jesse's son, humble beginnings. But I was exalted, lifted up by the Most High. One far higher, more powerful than you and I will ever know, or ever be, David's kind of hinting at. He's not saying he did it. He's not saying I built myself up. By my power, my strength, as many ancient kings would have written about, their own glory. He actually turns around and says, no, I was simply the one that the Lord lifted up. It was God who lifted me up. It was his work in my life that brought me to this place. He who anointed me, not myself at all. But then doesn't he call himself the hero of Israel's songs? Well, Bizarrely, the NIV is the only translation, this particular version of the NIV, not yours, yours was good, um, that translates it in this way. And I, think it's, I do think it's unhelpful. Every other translation says what Michael read, which is, and I checked loads, that actually it is I, David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Not the one who is the sweetness of the psalms or the hero of the psalms, but actually the sweet psalmist of Israel the one who wrote those sweet psalms. And who were those psalms about? Those psalms were about the Lord. They were about the true hero of Israel, God, their God. 
He is the one who is bigged up over and over and over again in the Psalms. And David was the one who had the privilege of being the sweet psalmist who wrote about him. So he's not bigging himself up here. He's bigging up God. And in the same vein, he says, it was the spirit of the Lord who spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. He reflects how the spirit of this amazing God who lifts up the forgotten bloke was then the one who spoke through him. It was the ruach. I love that Hebrew word. If you know only one Hebrew word, learn that one. Ruach. The spirit. The breath of God that was on his tongue. That beautiful, creative, wonderful ruach of God that was in David's mouth whenever he wrote anything that was profound or beautiful or wonderful in his life when anything wise and brilliant happened. It was the Lord, the mighty one. You see, David reflected back on his life and he couldn't help but see that it was God who had done it all the way through. Just like the songs we were singing this morning, so appropriate. It is you, Lord. It is you, Lord. It is you. But friends, it's so easy for us to miss this. When you and I look back on our lives, do we really reflect and see the work of God in every step or do we claim arrogantly that it was my doing? It was my wit, my skill, my work and hard work and fortune alone. Every good and perfect gift comes from him, from God, whether we realise it or not, right? And at the end of the day, it's good to stop at the end of each day. Stop and reflect back and see how that ruach of God was at work in your life, through your mouth, through others' lives, their actions, through their words. Ignatian spirituality calls it a daily examine. It is a good and healthy thing to realise and see God's presence in our lives each and every step of the way, even when it's hurt and painful and difficult. But we need our eyes opening and our hearts opening to recognise God in that way, always at work in our lives. David's eyes were unusually open, I would say, for an Old Testament person. He was unusual in that way. Most people considered God a distant, fearful figure who could only be approached through the temple system. But actually, David realised he was with him. All the time. In him, through him, at work, around him, and because of him. David looks at his life and says, do you know, it wasn't me. It was God. It was the God who loved me, who was at work. He doesn't say I had a rubbish life and I didn't do anything. No, he says, do you know what, I got elevated to the heights but it was him who did it, the God who loved me. It's not arrogant to say, friends, that God loves you. It's not arrogant to say that I'm deeply loved by God. I say that this morning, I'm deeply loved by God. It's just actually true. And it's not humble to declare the opposite. It's just untrue. God's able to do all things, but he's not able to love me. Ha! He is, and he does. God can forgive all sorts of things, but he could never forgive me. Well, he can, and he will, if you come to him and ask. You are loved through and through, and so 
am I? When we say I'm a wretch, he says, no, you're not. You're my masterpiece. We say I'm a disgrace. He says, no, you're not. You're you're forgiven. We say I'm a waste of time. He says, no, you're actually my chosen child. And I enjoy spending time with you. You know, it's okay to spend some time in our lives really working out and realizing and letting it bed home that you and I, when all is said and done, are deeply loved by the King of Heaven. That's not arrogance. It's truth. So David reflects on his own personal life. Now he begins to reflect on the big truths of life. These are truths which God, he says, revealed to him. Things that he's learned through his experiences, walking with the Lord, and things which God spoken through him. And God gives him these truths in two profound pictures that contrast hugely. The first one is a picture of life and of hope. When one rules over people in righteousness, verse 3, when he rules in the fear of God, Listen to this. He's like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning. Like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. It's a beautiful picture. But David also says later on in verse 6 that there's another way of living and ruling in this life. A way that is worthless. The Hebrew word here is worthlessness. NIV has translated it as evil men. They're trying to help us understand what he's saying. But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear. They are burned up where they lie. This second way is a way which, like thorns, not only brings hurt to others, but ultimately to ourselves. It's a life which ends in destruction. David is expressing here that there are actually choices in this life for a ruler. Ruling can live uh, or can lead to the suppression of the poor and the vulnerable and the vilification of the other and the trampling of the weak. But there is actually a way of ruling which can be like the beautiful sun dawning on a clear morning, bringing hope and life to all. And I think it's fair to say that David had the capacity for both. Don't you think that's fair as we've gone through his story? And we look back at his greatest downfalls, the adultery, the murder, the deceit, the deception, all of that mess. Was he not like a thorn that wanted to protect himself and sharp and keep away others and hurt others in the process and hurt himself? A thornful way of ruling as he sought self-preservation? But then there were those moments he got it so right, so right, where he ruled in the fear of the Lord with God's heart. And he taught his people good things, how to love and worship the Lord, good rule and good laws in the land. And the people prospered and enjoyed peace. But these times when he was ruling like this were the times when the Ruach of God was on his tongue, when the Ruach of God was working out through him. It's natural for David, you might say, to reflect on ruling at the end of his life. He was a mighty ruler. We might say good for him, 
but it's got nothing to do with me. I'm not a mighty ruler. I'm certainly no ruler at all. But don't you know that each and every human being not only has the capacity to rule, but actually has been given the command to rule by God. Rewind back all the way to the very first chapter of Scripture. In Genesis, where God turns around and says, Now, humanity, go and be fruitful and increase and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over all that you see. Go and rule, God says. If you think about it, each one of us has spheres of influence within which we rule in a way. We, what we do has an impact both spiritually and physically on those around us. Think for a moment. Perhaps we're not a prime minister, but perhaps we might be a teacher or a manager or a farmer or even a shop assistant. Each one has jurisdiction over which you can make decisions which can either bring life and hope and transformation or can be thornful and bring hurt. But actually it's the same whatever your job might be. Whether you're the lowest ranked person in your whole company, you still have an influence on those you meet and rub shoulders with every day. The capacity to be thornful or to be like light in the morning. Think about it as a parent. If you have kids, gosh, I'm thinking about this one right now. How I am in my home. Do I rule or rather influence and encourage in a way that is thornful and self-protective and grumpy? (laughs) Often. Or do I seek to rule in a way that is like the sun rising in the morning, bringing life? Bex and I have been thinking about that together. The environment that we influence spiritually and physically. Perhaps you're not at work, perhaps you're not a parent. But friends, each one of us has spheres of influence. We have carers and family and friends and neighbours and those we see regularly. Each one of you here has the capacity and the call to influence in a way that is positive, that brings hope and life and change. But friends, that doesn't happen by accident. That happens when the Ruach of God, the Spirit and breath of God, is on your tongue and my tongue. We have to be intentional about it. Intentionally learning of God's heart from his written word. Intentionally inviting and asking the Spirit, the Ruach of God, to be at work through us that we might be those who influence our society and our friends and our families and our workplaces and all elements that we're involved in, like the sun rising in the dawn. It's such a beautiful picture. There is a way of ruling, which is like the sun rising, breaking through the clouds after rain and causing grass to grow. Are you somebody who rules thornfully? Or are you someone who longs to bring life and hope and change? In which case, ask the Ruach of God once more to be on your tongue. May it be said of you, when all is said and done, that the Spirit of God was on your tongue. 
I finish with this final point, and I'll keep it short. David has reflected on his personal life. He's reflected on the big truths of life, these two ways of influencing and ruling. But he now reflects on the life to come. In verse 5 he says, If my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant. And once again, I'm not sure this translation is very helpful. Forgive me this morning for being so anti-NIV. I love the NIV normally. Um, but it's much better translated in the old version on the NSB that says, actually, truly is not my house considered by God to be like this dawning sun? For he's made an everlasting covenant with me. David's not saying, look, my family's amazing, clearly, because God's made a covenant with me. He's saying quite the opposite. He's saying, is not my family considered amazing? Because God's made this covenant with me. And really, it's an ironic question. Because if we've just read everything in the chapters preceding this, we turn around and go, no, David, it wasn't that amazing after all. Time and time and time again, you stuffed up. Time and time and time again, your family fell apart. In fact, the King James Bible translates it the exact opposite. The King James turns around and says, even though, or although my house be not so with God, even though it's not amazing, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant. The point here is, is that as David reflects on his own future and the future of his family line, he realizes it's God's grace and his grace and his grace and his grace alone. God's made an everlasting covenant with me. For some reason he looks at my family and my future and says, do you know what? It's okay. It's all right. Despite all the mess. Despite it all. He's made an everlasting covenant with me, the NASB goes on to say, ordered in all things and secured for my, all my salvation and all my desire Will he not indeed make it grow? This is not David feeling his future is secure because of his own name or his own efforts or his own righteousness. This is David realising that it is in God and God alone that his future is secure, ordered in every way. You see, David has known the enormous powers and forces of war, of man versus man, of weapons, of death, of dying, of pain. He's seen the very worst of war and hatred, of violence and greed, of nations and empires, and striving for more and more and more. But he realises there are much bigger forces than these at play when all is said and done. And these are the forces of God's grace and God's mercy and God's forgiveness and God's love. His eternal future is not safe because of man-made efforts, but because of God's grace and his divine promise. Is not my family safe now in the Lord, he says? And I want to remind you that you're part of his family line. Because Jesus was the descendant of David and you're the brother and sister of Christ if you know him and you love him. And we can say the same thing. Is not our future secure? Is not our salvation secure and ordered in every way? Because we are part 
of Jesus' family. Despite what we might think and what it might look like when we look at the news sometimes, the final word is not going to be the sound of a nuclear bomb or of tanks and screams and cries. When all is said and done, this final word is grace and mercy and forgiveness and love in Jesus. That's the final word. He works it all out. Our future is not secure because of our economic policies or our national pride or our wise investments or the size of our armies. No, it's secure in Jesus, the one who is the resurrection and the life, the one who is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. And our salvation and all our desire is only found in the one who went to that cross and won it for us and took away our shame and our rubbish and debt and replaced it with his grace and his love and his forgiveness our eternal destiny is ordered in all things only in the one and through the one and because of the one who defeated death itself and rose again and breathes his life giving ruach into all who come to him in humility and realise that he is the victor he is the eternal king And he is the Lord of all. Friends, I'm done. But when all is said and done, it's not about you and it's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about him. I know where my future is secure and why and in whom. It's in Jesus. Praise Jesus. Do you know that? Be reminded of it again today. Or maybe for the first time, get right with that Jesus and let him be your future hope, secured and ordered in all ways. Let's pray, shall we? Lord God, we do not take lightly days like this where we can stop and remember and reflect. And we have remembered again the great courage, but also the great folly and pain caused by war. And Lord, we want to say that our hopes are not dependent on us and our might and our abilities, but on you and you alone, on you, Jesus. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would once again pour out your Ruach, your Spirit. Come, Spirit of God, that it might be said of me and it might be said of all of us here that your Ruach was on our tongue, that we influenced and blessed and loved and lived in a way that was like light rising in the morning that brought life and green grass growing in the fields. Lord, we love you. Lord, we need you. Lord, thank you that you are our everything. You are our salvation, ordered in all ways and secure. Amen.